Hey, listeners, it's Brad Kearns here. I'm here to introduce you to Casper.com, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price that you find at retail stores. It's important to get the best quality mattress for a good night's sleep. Visit Casper.com slash Primal and use the discount code Primal. You'll get $50 and then be on your way to sweet dreams with Casper.com. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, introducing your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. We have a really interesting guest today, Brant Courtright, PhD, a professor of psychology at the California Institute for Integral Studies and also a clinical psychologist with a private practice in San Francisco and the author of a great book I really loved called The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. Welcome to the show, Brant. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I really, actually, this is by far one of my favorite books on this topic because it's so easy to understand and so clear and well laid out for the lay person who doesn't want to get into too much nitty gritty uh, neuroscience, you know, for, for those of us that haven't studied it as long as you have. There's so much to discuss here. I want to kind of go through point by point. One of the things I don't think a lot of people understand, and, and I didn't even necessarily like, oh, this point hit home, was that the brain keeps growing new brain cells for your entire life. So this is something we can constantly be working with. And, you know, people have variation in the rate of neurogenesis. And, you know, according to you in your book, you know, when that rate of neurogenesis is high, you're alive, you're engaged, you're expansive, you're fulfilling your potential. And when it's not, and you have a low rate of neurogenesis, your brain shrinks, your life contracts, and you move towards memory loss and cognitive de- you know, deficits and, and stress and anxiety and depression. So let's start off with the rate of neurogenesis. And and talk a little bit about how our brain cells uh, keep activating, and just do a little intro there, and then we'll get into some of the nitty gritty. Okay, good. So as you just said, um, we keep growing brain cells throughout our entire life, and this is a big change in neuroscience. It was considered as gospel up until the late 1990s that the brain stopped growing new brain cells once we were in our early 20s. And after that, it was just one slow die-off. And then they discovered that actually we do create new brain cells throughout the entire lifespan, up until we die, a process called neurogenesis. And they didn't know the significance of this until just a few years ago, when they realized that, as you're saying, our rate of neurogenesis is actually the most important biomarker for brain health that almost nobody has heard of. So the science on this is so new that most people still don't even realize, first of all, that new brain cell growth does happen. And secondly, the most important thing, that our rate of neurogenesis is incredibly important for the quality of our life. Because think about it for a minute. Everything we experience, we experience through the brain. 
And so a low-quality brain means a low-quality life. And a high-quality brain indicates a really high quality of life at every level, body, heart, mind, spirit, every level of our consciousness we experience through our brain. And so the quality of our brain is hugely important. And our rate of neurogenesis, getting that as high as possible, becomes really important. Most people can increase their rate of neurogenesis by five times with big changes in not only memory, but also how they feel. So as you were saying, a high rate of neurogenesis means rapid learning, rapid problem solving, um, learning new things really quickly. And it also means emotionally having a robust emotional resilience and protection against anxiety, stress, and depression. So bad things still happen, but we bounce back really quickly and we aren't as bowled over by things as much. I like the point you make in this discussion about, you know, depression is linked to lowered neurogenesis. And then you talk about how SSRIs like Prozac and those things, they increase neurogenesis. And let's talk about that connection, right? So there's ways for us to naturally improve the levels in our brain of certain transmitters and hormones that a pill can do as well, but we can do this naturally through, and we'll get to the details on that later. But I really like that correlation about depression being linked to lower neurogenesis. Can you get into that component? Yeah, that's really interesting. That's what actually got me into this. I was writing a holistic approach to depression book originally. And as I was exploring more the physical dimension to it, right? Again, a holistic approach, body, heart, mind, spirit. Um, as I was approaching the physical part of this, learning about it, I was looking at this whole serotonin deficiency theory of depression. And that is what has made um, the pharmaceutical companies kind of just take off in, since the 1980s. The discovery of SSRIs, of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It has been the greatest thing since sliced bread for big pharma. And they've been pushing it with this idea that people who are depressed have lower serotonin levels. And it turns out that is a myth. Actually, most of the research shows that people who are depressed have normal serotonin levels. Some even show, some studies show that actually they have higher than normal serotonin levels. And a few show that they have lower serotonin levels. It turns out that the way the SSRIs work is not by increasing your serotonin, but by increasing your rate of neurogenesis. So, and they've done, they've done this experiment in a lot of different ways. Um, they increase the rate of neurogenesis, but they don't allow the serotonin levels to rise. They find that the person gets out of being depressed or the rat or the monkey or whatever. Similarly, they increase the rate of they increase the serotonin levels, but they don't let the, ser the the neurogenesis rate increase. There is no change in depression. You know that's one of the things that they didn't understand about SSRIs. That when you take an SSRI, your serotonin levels go through the roof within hours. Your serotonin level changes immediately, but there's no change in depression for three to four weeks, and that's how long it takes new brain cells to mature and to come online. So it turns out that 
Antidepressants, you know, they are hugely overprescribed at this point. One in four American women between the ages of 25 and 45 is taking an SSRI. I find that just mind-blowing. There's something really wrong with this picture. And the problem with SSRIs is also there's huge side effects. Most people lose their libido, their sex drive, which is depressing in itself. Um, there's, there's many other uh, side effects. And it turns out you can actually increase your rate of neurogenesis naturally way faster and way more than um, taking an SSRI, but without any of the side effects. So this is, I mean, what's also interesting about this is that um, the cartels know this. The cartels know that it's actually neurogenesis which is responsible for depression. And they are madly at work trying to find the next new patentable billion-dollar drug. And when they find it, we will hear nonstop advertising about it. But in the meantime, the cartels have a good thing going. It's a $16 billion a year industry in the United States selling SSRIs. So most people still believe this serotonin deficiency myth, but the real story, I think, here is neurogenesis. And that's what got me into the whole book on neurogenesis. I love it. And I love the whole, and I've heard this before and read about it, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, you know, and I've seen even brain scans where someone has learned something new and you can actually see the little, I don't know what they're called, the little neurons or what, whatnot, like kind of linked together, like they, they reaching towards each other and then they click, they make a connection. So you can not only retrain your brain out of an unhealthy pattern, but you can retrain it in, in new ways as well, which is fascinating because like you say in your book, a lot of people think that our brains are this set thing and it's not, it's, it's a jello, it's a, it's movable, it's got plasticity and we can work with that. Um, let's get into these poisons that the anti-neurogenesis components to life, you know, aside from diet and food, but let's talk about some of the things you mentioned. Uh, if we could go through some of those, that'd be great. Okay, good. Um, this is really important because there are so many things that are neurotoxic in our environment that slow down neurogenesis that everybody gets exposed to. Nobody escapes this. And we all just kind of stumbled into this innocently. Nobody did this on purpose. But it turns out that they haven't really known this because they didn't even know that neurogenesis existed until just a, less than two decades ago. And they didn't know what slowed it down or speeded it up until really just the past 10, 15, actually five, even three years for some of these things. So one, I think of like four major poisons, four major neurotoxins that slow down our rate of neurogenesis. Chronic inflammation, chronic stress, physical assaults, and deprivation. So just taking those in reverse order, deprivation. Um, think of being in solitary confinement or being trapped in a, I don't know, a hospital bed. Um, the brain thrives on stimulation. We don't want too much stimulation, but we also don't want too little. It, it's a Goldilocks problem. Um, too little stimulation causes the brain to just kind of curl up, um, just kind of contract into itself. And it slows neurogenesis way, way, way down. Um, we need a certain amount of 
physical stimulation, emotional stimulation, mental stimulation, also spiritual stimulation. Um, physical assaults are things like concussions, um, bumps on the head. Um, it turns out that one concussion will double your risk of Alzheimer's. Um, we want to take really good care of the brain. Um, if you ride a bike, for sure, you should, re you should use a, a bike helmet. Um, actually, bike accidents are the leading cause of brain damage in the United States right now. Um, and much of it is preventable if we really take good care. So assaults to the brain are another assault would be like mercury toxicity. Mercury is one of the most potent neurotoxins known. I think only plutonium is a more powerful neurotoxin than mercury. Wow. Um, we want our mercury levels as low as possible. And there's many sources of it, fish being a big one, but also most um, vaccines for adults are preserved with thimerosal, which is mercury, which is completely crazy. It's a terrible thing to put into a vaccine and to get into the brain. Um, so we want to lower physical assaults that reduce those or minimize those. And then chronic inflammation and chronic stress. Um, chronic inflammation uh, slows neurogenesis to a crawl. It also um, eats up, it chews up the inside of our blood vessels. So we need short-term inflammation. We need to be able to mount an inflammatory response in response to an infection, a cold, or a cut. Short-term, we need inflammation to protect us. But when it goes awry and we get chronic inflammation, it doesn't get turned off, that inflammation in the brain it damages the brain, it actually kills brain cells, and it slows our rate of neurogenesis to a crawl. It's also bad for just about every other system in the body, um, the cardiovascular system. There's so many diseases that have chronic inflammation behind them. Um, and then chronic stress is another one. Chronic stress of all kinds, chronic physical stress, but also what is more prevalent is chronic emotional stress. You know, they do these surveys and they find out that most adults are in a state of chronic stress right now. And even people in their 20s and 30s, millennials, experience levels of stress that are way higher than millennials experienced in the 1980s or the 1950s. Again, stress is one of these things that over the short term, it's actually good for us. Um, it, it makes us grow stronger. Like when we stress a muscle, we exercise a muscle, and then we stop, the muscle breaks down, and it grows back stronger. It's the same emotionally. When we have stresses at work or interpersonally, short term, it provides a challenge to us. And when we meet that challenge, we express our capacities, we express our potential, we actualize ourselves in some way. So... Short-term stress and moderate stress, we need. The brain thrives on that. It, it grows new connections. It actually stimulates neurogenesis. But that's not the problem for most people. Most people 
suffer from chronic stress. And that is terrible for the brain. High amounts of stress can actually kill certain parts of the brain, including the hippocampus, which is one of the main places where neurogenesis occurs. Um, chronic stress, again, slows your rate of neurogenesis way, way, way down. So if we're experiencing chronic stress, we want to break it up. We want to do things that will de-stress us, that will relax the body. And so having a life where we can just chill, we can just come down, we can take a break from what is stressful is really important to not be on 24-7 because that has a curdling effect on the brain. It really just shrivels the brain. It also is bad for immunity. It's bad for all sorts of systems in the body. But particularly for the brain, it's bad. Your whole diet and lifestyle recommendation is so in line with, you know, the primal blueprint, paleo, ancestral living, the percentages of what you offer for hunter-gatherers and, you know, their fat, protein, and carbs versus the government guidelines are the exact same pie charts that I put in my recent book. Uh, so, you know, what your recommendations are are so in line with primal paleo eating, you know, a diet high in healthy fats, it's anti-inflammatory, low glycemic, high fiber, you know, antioxidant rich, uh, those promote neurogenesis. Um, since our Listenership is sort of familiar with that, and I don't know that we need to go into too much of the actual food part, although I'd like to discuss just a few things that, you know, you say obviously are great for neurogenesis, such as blueberries, you know, turmeric or curcumin, uh, omega-3s, green tea. I mean, there's some things that are sort of known out there uh, that we realize. I love the fact that you mentioned the importance of DHEA because that is something that classically Everyone that I see and talk to who's got some problem with their health has very low DHEA levels, which is absolutely indicative of adrenal slash stress. So I love that you emphasize that and how important that uh, plays a role in our life. I'd love to get into some of the other components, though, of lifestyle. Like, for example, you know, you talk about aerobic activity being very helpful, and, and that's the key to neurogenesis, increased blood flow, etc. But then you make the point that, you know, if you're doing high-impact running or things that are high-impact, you could be shocking and shaking up the brain, you know, in a way that wouldn't be help, healthy. So that a low-impact strategy and those kind of things are even better for the brain instead of this consistent, chronic, you know, pounding the pavement, literally, um, so I love that, that you mentioned that. Let's get into some of the other things, the, the touch, the, the, the sleep, the doing new things. You know, I love all of those components you talk about in your book. Can I just go back to the running piece? Absolutely. There's been some new research that I think is also really important about all this. So, yes, running in a way that just jars the brain, not good, clearly. But there's been um, some question about what type of running or what type of aerobic activity is best. Is it continuous over, say, 20, 30, 40 minutes or longer? Or is this high-intensity interval training better? And I know that there's a lot of research that talks about just how good this high-intensity interval training is. However, um, when it comes to neurogenesis, just recently, like within the past six months, they've discovered that the high-intensity interval training has no effect on the rate of neurogenesis. 
the only type of aerobic activity that increases your rate of neurogenesis is if you do it for 20, 30, 40 minutes, like three, four times a week. So if you're jogging or if you're fast dancing or, you know, aerobic exercise is anything that gets you breathing fast. So fast dancing, walking up a mountain, biking, swimming. Um, but you need to do it for 20, 30, 40 minutes a few times a week. And then it has this very robust effect on our rate of neurogenesis. Now, it turns out that when that happens, about half of those new neurons die off pretty quickly. That the brain prunes new neurons pretty quickly, unless we do other things. So some of this comes back to diet. Um, you mentioned sort of the general outlines, and, and there's other things that also increase neurogenesis, such as like quercetin, luteolin, apigenin, and there's another bioflavonoid called hesperidin. Hesperidin comes from uh, citrus fruits. And the way it increases neurogenesis is it keeps new neurons alive. So if you're doing running or you're doing some form of aerobic activity, you're getting this explosion of new brain cells, but about half of them are dying, unless you do something like hesperidin. And if you do hesperidin, the normal form of it that we get in a supplement is has very poor bioavailability. But if you do a form of it called methylchalcone, then the, the bioavailability is much, much higher. We absorb almost all of that. So, if to do something that increases your rate of neurogenesis, I think all these things are really important. But then particularly doing something like methylchalcone and other things, um, that keeps the new neurons alive about 100%, close to 100%. Now, one other thing about the running. So they didn't real understand at first, why does... Um, running for a period of time increased the rate of neurogenesis, but this interval training doesn't. So they went back and they looked very carefully at the brain changes and the hormonal change that take place. And what they discovered is that when we run for 20, 30, 40 minutes, the brain produces ketones at a low level. And those ketones, particularly beta-hydroxybutyrate, stimulate neurogenesis. They stimulate BDNF. They stimulate other chemicals, other neurotrophins that increase our rate of neurogenesis. So this is very interesting because it's the first evidence to show that maybe a ketogenic diet is highly neurogenic. I'm totally in favor of that. I'm totally in favor of that because that's how I'm living my life and I can say that the effects on my brain, energy, focus, mental stimulation are far greater than they were when I had a higher carb consumption. 
Me too. I'm on a ketogenic diet now too. And it's amazing. Yeah. And so anti-inflammatory in and of itself and so aligned with our DNA and everything we talk about. And, and you mentioned in your book and other people have before, like Dr. Perlmutter, were you know, calling, you know, Alzheimer's type three diabetes. You know, these are the effects of glycation, sugar, carbs, and these things on our brain, which of course you are a proponent of, of not overdoing or not doing them at all. Um, I also love what you said about sleep because I really felt this, which was, you know, you talked about seven to eight hours a night, and then you mentioned that, you know, even four to six hours can disrupt cognitive uh, cognitive function the next day. I totally feel that. If I have a night where I've only slept six hours, I feel almost hungover sometimes. It's It's tough brain energy throughout the day, and it's really only a matter of a couple of hours, you know, lacking there. So I definitely see those effects. That, that's huge. Um, I think most people have really underestimated the role that sleep plays in their life. It's really big because the brain not only regenerates and not only does the rate of neurogenesis increase on a full night's sleep, but the brain also cleans itself. This is something that, again, has just been discovered in the past few years, where when we sleep, particularly towards the end of our sleep cycle, Actually, there's this cerebral spinal fluid that flows throughout the brain, and the brain cells actually shrink by about a third to a half. And so it's like what the cerebral spinal fluid does is it clears out all of the plaque and the beta amyloid that is accumulated during the day. And that's the stuff that increases in Alzheimer's. That's not something we want to accumulate in our brain. We want to wash it out. So the brain experiences like this bath or like this shower when we sleep, particularly towards the tail end of sleep, like that sixth, seventh, and eighth hours is when this happens the most. So you know how that how you feel like if you only get like four hours sleep, you kind of feel like even after you've taken a shower, like you haven't washed, you haven't taken a shower. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's weird. You like you still feel gross and dirty inside somehow. Like you can't wash it off. Yeah. Exactly. That's your brain. That your brain is dirty at that point. That's, <laughs> That's a new way to look at getting good sleep. Yeah, huge. And it's also um, important in terms of stress reduction. Good night's sleep just to sort of come back to homeostatic balance. Hey, listeners, it's Brad Kearns here to talk to you about a very important subject, about the location that you spend more time than anywhere else in your whole life. And I'm talking about your bed. Hopefully you're spending a third of your life there. I'm spending a little more than that. I'm trying to anyway. And it's important to get the best quality mattress for a good night's sleep or a good nap in some cases. So I'm here to introduce you to Casper.com, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price that you find at retail stores. Mattress industry has huge markups. These guys are cutting through that by shipping you directly to your home for free. No shipping charge a mattress of your choice that you get to try for an incredible 100 days before you decide to actually buy it and keep it. You can return it, no hassle, no problem, and giving it a proper test rather than laying on a mattress for five minutes in a showroom and thinking that's going to work for a third of your lifetime spent there. Casper mattresses are a new hybrid that combines premium latex foam with memory foam for the most comfortable sleep you'll ever have. And the prices are extremely competitive. Think about a twin for $500, a king for $950. Again, free shipping. And thanks to listening to this podcast, you'll get a $50 discount toward the purchase of your comfortable new mattress. Just visit casper.com slash primal 
and use the discount code PRIMAL, you'll get that $50. It'll ship to your house for free. You can try it out, enjoy it, and then be on your way to sweet dreams with Casper.com. Let's let's talk about touch and and sex, intimacy, touch. You you mentioned this, uh, have in-depth discussion of this on your book and how that stimulates neurogenesis. And I definitely feel that that is lacking in a lot of people's lives, especially like you talk about, we're so, you, it's a false sense of connection to be online in this world. People are behind their commute, you know, computers or, or phones and they're having these faux, I guess, relationships and connections with people. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but that there's this lack elsewhere too and how important that is. Can you touch on, can you touch on touch for a minute? <laughs> can you talk about that? So. Touch increases our rate of neurogenesis, and lack of touch slows it down. Um, of course, touch needs to be welcome and needs to feel safe. We don't want it to be intrusive. Um, but the brain produces chemicals, hormones, neurotransmitters, when we're touched, that not only relax us and de-stress us, but also rev up our rate of neurogenesis. Um, and as you mentioned, sex also has a big effect on our rate of neurogenesis. And it's interesting because there's a difference between men and women here. So for men, sex, just about any time, anywhere, it, it, that increases the rate of neurogenesis um, and any particular rhythm. But for women to in- experience an increase in neurogenesis through sex they need to control the rate of sex, the rhythm of sex, the timing. If the timing is in control of the man or the other partner, man or woman, then there's no increase in neurogenesis. So I think women probably intuitively know this, that the woman needs to have a sense of control over the timing in sex. And I think that's just good kind of sex advice just out there anyway. Well, what about, what about, uh, neurogenesis with regards to self-pleasure? Is it different? Is it still increased that way? Or is it only through with another human being? You know, the science isn't entirely clear on that. Probably that also would have an effect, although it's not clear to have the same effect, but probably that also is good. But I was going to say, do you need a test subject? I'm, I'm available. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. That was one of the thoughts that popped up. I, you know, I'm assuming, obviously, the human touch element with another person is there. But if someone can be in that fantasy world in their head where they're imagining such a loving scenario while self-pleasuring, just was curious to see if that also increased the rate of neurogenesis. But obviously, there aren't maybe studies on that right now. I would think that it would probably show that, yes, there is a good effect, but but it, the science isn't in yet. Let's talk about doing new things, novel environments, new sensory stimulation. This is such a, I love this because I am a, a creature of routine and I like habit, but then every once in a while I intentionally, because I know it's good for my brain, I will switch it up. I will be driving in my neighborhood. Let's say I live in the mountains and I'll see a road I've never gone down before. And I'll just say, you know what? Let me just drive down this road, listen to some music for a bit and see what's going on over here. And there's something about that, that even for a few minutes sort of 
adds something new and pleasurable to my day. There is definitely an effect there. So can you get into that a little bit and talking about the importance of doing new things? This, um, this comes out of some interesting research done with mice in neurogenesis where they tried to increase their rate of neurogenesis. And they did so actually by five times by giving them a very enriched environment. And what they discovered is that having new environments to play in, new like nesting materials, new areas to explore, um, not only did the rate of neurogenesis go up, but again, this is one of the main things that kept new neurons alive, kept the rate of neurogenesis and the survival of those new neurons close to 100%. So if we can travel, if we can go new places, meet new people, get out of our routine, listen to new music, read new things, um, as you're saying, take a different route home or to where you're going, um, the brain thrives on this kind of stimulation. And it's, it, its effect, again, is to keep those new neurons alive, just like hesperidin does. Um, hugely important. The brain thrives on new things. Too much, and it shuts down. But we, each of us finds this sweet spot that is kind of optimal for us. The optimal amount of, like, travel, going to new places, meeting new things. And if we can find that sweet spot, it's really good for the brain. Well, I was also thinking on that note of you were mentioning the mice and new nesting materials. And then I was thinking in relation to humans, you know, maybe that's something where even in your own environment, not that someone has to get all new furniture, but maybe you can rearrange some things, get some new art or have new images around. And that could be something within one's own environment where they can switch that up a couple of times a year. I remember I used to like, when I was in college, I probably rearranged my, you know, dorm room and my apartment, you know, several times a year. There was just something so fun about having this new sort of environment, this new nesting environment, something I actually really like doing. And I've sort of done for years since. Um, So I'm thinking that even if someone can't get out or afford to travel or go to new environments, there's ways within your own environment to probably do some of that. Right. That's exactly right. If you can change up your own house, your, the things on the walls, that's, that's another way of doing this. And also <clears throat> our outer environment kind of reflects the state of our self. And as the self changes, it needs new images, new colors, new ways of expressing itself outwardly. And so changing it up, what's on the walls, things you're looking at, that's also an expression of your own inner growth, as well as it stimulates then the brain for further growth. And then I guess we can roll right into, you know, well, there's so many great points within this, you know, nature, of course, very important. I'm in nature every day. I love it. I feel it's essential to my life. When I'm not in it, I miss it. Um, And then you talk about you know, positivity and optimism. And I think this is important because this is something that can be practiced. Not everybody is already in line with it, but, you know, feeling good and love and positivity do increase neurogenesis. And so there's just another argument that if anyone out there feels that's hippy dippy power of positive thinking stuff, it's, it's not junk. It's actually quite applicable and real to how your brain works and the quality of your life. Can you touch on, on those things? Yeah, that's right. In in some ways, A lot of this stuff is kind of common sense, right? That love is good, that pleasure is good, 
Um, but it's nice to actually have the brain science that shows, yes, actually when we experience a lot of pleasure and we have an optimistic attitude towards life, or even if bad things happen, we think we'll get through them, that that actually is protective for the brain and it actually, that optimism increases neurogenesis. And similarly, a pessimistic attitude, always bracing for the worst, um, it increases our levels of stress. It's bad for the brain. Um, you know, pessimists live about 20% less long than optimists. Um, so it has an effect not only on our physical health, but also on our neurological health as well. Well, and it makes sense because when I think of pessimists, I think of people that are constantly replaying the past, living in the past, you know, uh, know where every hatchet was buried, um, might be skeptical or not even open to new things because, again, they're pessimists or or skeptical or or whatever you want to say versus optimists who are going to be more inclined to be open to new ideas and new things. And optimists also see the future and dream of the future and possibilities and see positive possibilities versus looking at facts, figures, and, you know, negative scenarios like a pessimist would. So that makes total sense to me. One of the things you mentioned in your book, and I really love you to touch on this because this is something, it's really hit home with me. You, you Let's get into the discussion of the whole dominant versus subordinate positions and how that affects one, because I see this really, even though it was with animals that you were talking about in the book, I see this so related to us. And if you could just do a little intro on that, I'd love to get into that discussion. It turns out that if you are um, dominant in a pair, that can be good for um, your immunity and it can be good for um, your rate of neurogenesis. But if you are subordinate and you are in the one down position, that is neurotoxic. That is highly stressful. And your rate of neurogenesis slows way down. So when we think about the growing income inequality in America, for example, we think about um, things like racism, um, populations that are marginalized, um, disempowered parts of America. It's, it's not only a tragedy in terms of just human relationships, but it's a neurological tragedy as well. It's harmful for the brain. Um, it slows down neurogenesis. And this is, this is not just in animals. There's been numerous studies now with people in terms of health outcomes, where people lower in an organizational um, ladder have poor health outcomes than those at the top of the organizational ladder. And that makes total sense to me. And this is the way I, I took it. I, the, my takeaway was this sort of tells me that everyone does need to strive to not only have more self-worth, to stand up for oneself, to be assertive, to speak up. Because the people that I know that allow themselves to remain in these situations or bullied or a contentious relationship, or they don't speak up, whether it's in the workplace or the relationship, you've put yourself in a subordinate position, you've put yourself in a very weakened state. And, you know, when we look at leaders of industry or any other type of leaders, they usually are more dominant personalities who draw boundaries for themselves are assertive. And, or I should just say, you know, don't take a lot of shit. And, um, 
that to me, that's, that's, that sort of rang true to me. That, that means to me that, especially with this neurogenesis, that yes, you should do it for you in your life, but also this is a part of your brain. And it's also usually not honoring what the person wishes, right? People in subordinate positions who are being bullied don't want to be there. <laughs> you know, usually, there, I mean, there might be some self-conscious, self-hating thing that keeps them there. But for the most part, I don't think anyone really likes that. Uh, no one's, you know, been bullied and says, that's great, you know, yes, or I'll have another. So I, I, that was my takeaway from it. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing is that sometimes you can't really say anything in the situation, in which case you need to find other situations where you are valued. So we have many different levels of identity. And we, you know, there's something called intersectionality, where we exist in many different uh, realms. And so we may be in a subordinate position in work, but maybe in our family, we can be taken care of um, some kids, or we can be volunteering somewhere um, as an instructor, or we can be, um, we can find other sources of identity that do feed us. So we're not just a kind of victim all the time. We can find other ways of having self-esteem um, and asserting ourselves, expressing ourselves certainly is a help. If we hold stuff in, that is generally not good. But if we can't express ourselves because we'll get fired or whatever, then we need to find other outlets and other places where we are valued. Right. And just to go through the little laundry list of stressful relationships, you know, aside from, you know, bad bosses who are domineering and controlling, uh, bullying relationships, you know, hostile or angry. Uh, I like this one because this one is interesting. The personal non-work relationships that are emotionally cold or distant without much personal disclosure. So that's a level of sort of detachment, not really uh, having an intimate connection with someone. But this next one I'd like you to touch on or define further, which is the quote, as if relationships that pretend to be more than they are. Can you give me a little scenario of what that could look like in our reality? Sure. So most of us are brought up in a family that wounds us in certain ways and which values us and loves us in certain ways. And so we come out with a personality that's kind of an amalgam of partly authentic and partly as if, a partly kind of defensive structure that we built in order to relate to our parents or caregivers um, because other parts of our personality were threatening to them in some way. And of course, this was because they were wounded by their parents and their parents were wounded just all the way back. Um, so that causes us then to create future relationships that also are partly real and partly unreal, where we are pretending to be people we aren't in order to get the love that we want. Now, when we pretend to be who we aren't and interact with other people who are also pretending to be who they aren't either, we create these as-if relationships, these phony relationships. And that creates a certain amount of stress inside because we're not really being real. And it also doesn't give us the real love that we actually do need, right? Love is sort of the fundamental emotional nutrient that we need from the moment we're born until the moment we die. We need to love and we need to be loved. And we need to be loved not just for our um, false self, 
but for our real self, for who we actually are. Um, many of us learn in our families that our real self is unlovable because that was not okay. And that's a very costly lesson. And we need to unlearn that. And therapy is one way to unlearn that, to realize that actually our true self is lovable and to find people who can really relate and love that part, love that full self. Um, and that love then becomes very neurogenic. When we are loved, we get high levels of oxytocin. Um, we get high levels of dopamine. We get high levels of all sorts of chemicals that increase our rate of neurogenesis. That feeling good, feeling in good, loving, supportive relationships is good for the brain. And these as-if kind of false, phony relationships, it's not good for the brain. Could you, especially with your, your background, you know, and, and for what you, you do as a psychologist, uh, can you define and sort of give some examples of what codependent relationships may be like? Because I think there's a lot of people in them and don't even see them as such. Um, I mean, obviously, a, a codependent relationship can be, you know, two drug addicts or one enabling another or, you know, sort of some obvious ones. What are some that you see where people have not even been aware that they're even in a codependent relationship? And can you kind of help define that for our listeners? Because I think there's a lot of people that are in them and don't even see that they might be contributing and that they are codependent. Right. There's a lot of subtlety in this. Um, it's normally talked about in these very kind of dramatic ways of a, um, an alcoholic and the enabling spouse. But there are much more subtle versions of it that are much, much more common. So, for example, a conflict-avoidant couple where they avoid arguments, they avoid getting angry with each other, um, <clears throat> they avoid setting a boundary with each other, and they're in a kind of merged, fused state. Um, that kind of mushy relationship, although there, moments of that can be wonderful, moments of um, merging love, can be fabulous, but then we also need to differentiate again and individuate. And so sometimes in intimate relationships, there can be a failure to put up boundaries. So I may um, go along with things that I don't really want to do. Now, sometimes that's fine. Um, you talk about, uh, can you get into a stressful relationship being a caretaker? That 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 is very draining and stressful if someone's taking care of a sick elderly parent or even a spouse, uh, that can be draining. We often don't spend time on ourselves in those moments or we are overly tired because we're sitting by someone's bedside. Uh, can you talk a little bit about caretaker relationships? Yeah. Um, and another example of this would be mothers dealing with developmentally delayed children. They've looked at the telomeres of these kind of mothers and found that Around by age 10, 5 to 10, the mothers of these developmentally delayed kids have telomeres that are 5 to 10 years older than they should be, than their peers. So there's a big um, accelerated aging piece that goes along with that. So if you are a caretaker, which is extremely, of course, being the person who's taken care of is stressful, but being a caretaker is also extremely stressful. And so getting breaks, getting help, 
again, learning to come back to homeostatic balance and also learning to take care of yourself, right? It's so easy to get focused on the other and caring for the other that we lose a sense of ourselves. And, and that's, that in essence of what is what codependence is, where we're focused more on the other than our own sense of ourselves. And again, without boundaries, there's this kind of merging, this confluent state that happens where self and other are not very well differentiated. So boundaries, you know, you can really only contact another person with boundaries. It's like boundaries, like our boundary of our skin, it separates us from our environment, but it also joins us to the environment. Um, we need to have boundaries because that's where experience occurs. I can touch another at that boundary. And similarly, psychologically, healthy boundaries um, are good for a healthy brain. And non-existent boundaries or murky boundaries or um, shadowy boundaries, um, they don't allow our real needs to be met. And that becomes increasingly painful, stressful, um, neurotoxic, ultimately. And sort of last but not least, I want to touch on creativity. And you talked about the discovery with birds in that neurogenesis in birds is related to their ability to come up with new bird songs and compose new songs, new themes, and new variation on those themes. And that all depends on uh, new neurons. And so even if someone is out there listening and they're not a creative person or they don't think they are per se, this still alludes to not only doing something different, but even if uh, rearranging the house and putting up new artwork might be a creative activity or uh, certainly lends itself to, I've, of course, I would suggest everybody read and learn, but when people come back from a nine to five long day, if staring at a computer, sometimes that's not there. So what kind of ways could we get into some creativity to help us with that? This is quite an interesting question because you often think of creativity as just being like painting or singing or something with the arts, but creativity takes so many forms from um, cooking in a different way to relating to somebody in a different way to um, experimenting with uh, new things, new activities. Our creativity can be, expressed in many, many different ways. And it's not just through the classical arts. Yeah, I think this is, again, creativity, probably, I think it's, it's not absolutely confirmed at this point, but I think that there's a good case to be made that it's looking like creativity is also neurogenic, good for the brain. Um, if you have a life where you are doing creative things like art, wonderful, keep, keep it up. Um, and even there, sort of switching hemispheres is a way. Like, like many people are very left brain and verbal. So if you switch to doing more activities that are involving nonverbal things, whether it's music, whether it's movement, um, whether it's nonverbal movement, um, whether it's um, you know, talking to your baby in nonsense syllables, there's many ways in which creativity can come into our lives if we sort of expand what creativity is. 
I love it. That's great. I do like that. Yeah, there's lots of things that can be considered creative. I like how you mentioned even a different way of cooking or trying a new cuisine or going to some random restaurant. And you're like, you know, I've never had Ethiopian. What's that like? That can be a creative endeavor. And I, I like that because that's easy for a lot of people to do without thinking that they have to pick up a pen and paper or, you know, do a collage or something like that. So what would you like to leave our audience with? First of all, I want to find out before I guess you answer that question is um, how can we find you in your book? The book is the Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, and you can get it on Amazon. You can order it from any bookstore. You can get it through Apple, Kobo, um, Google. Um, and my website is brantcourtright.com. Um, but the book is um, pretty widely available at this point in paperback or Kindle version. And it's really good. I, I really, really enjoyed it, and I feel it's such a – easy, clear, concise read. And it's so um, compelling and right in line with everything, you know, we uh, preach and talk about here at Primal Blueprint and all of the diet and, you know, components as well. But I just felt all these others were so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with when it comes to this subject? Well, I guess I'd again, just like to stress the holistic process of this, that body, heart, mind, spirit, when we stimulate the brain from all of these ways together, they work together synergistically, much more powerfully than if we just do one or two. So that this really is a holistic approach. We need to involve all levels of our brain for optimal brain health. And I think that's it. Thank you for having me, Al. Thanks so much for, for joining us. And I, we did sort of skip over the spiritual aspect. You do have a big section in your book about spiritual components, you know, from meditation to uh, people who are religious, etc. And there's a great discussion about that in the book and so many other topics we could go into for another couple of hours. But thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we hope to we hope great success with your book. And we'll we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest-growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. We also have payment plans available, so you can start immediately for just a dollar down. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.